Perhaps the greatest storyteller ever was Scheherazade in the midst of the Islamic Golden Age, a Sassanid ruler, a cruel ruler, insatiable in his appetites, took it upon himself to kill every virgin of his kingdom after spending but one night with them. The last virgin of his empire, Scheherazade, came to him and offered to tell him stories if she could survive just one more night. So Scheherazade outwitted the ruler and told him fascinating stories for another 1,001 nights. But some critics say that Scheherazade's 1,001 stories can all be summarised in just seven basic plots. Is it true? And what are these seven seals to the secrets of all stories? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. I am a Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster, poet, and very, 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 very minor government official. And this is Burning Archive podcast about all things history and culture, where the past is never dead, the past is not even past, and whereby thinking about the past, we try to live better in the present. And today I am talking about stories, going back to one of the questions asked by Freya Rich in episode 22, A Canon of One's Own. What better way to introduce a topic about stories than A Thousand and One Nights? And also in this podcast that celebrates the cultures of a of a multipolar world it's also a fine reminder that many of the streams of the culture that we enjoy today come from all parts of the world in this case from the islamic golden age and there are so many loved stories from that tradition crime stories love stories Sinbad the Sailor, Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves and so on. All from A Thousand and One Nights or the Arabian Nights as it's sometimes known. And how could I forget Aladdin? Aladdin and the Magic Lamp. How perfect. So yeah, it's a reminder also that stories are a feature of all human cultures, not just the West. But do some of the basic forms of stories transcend cultures and transcend times and especially common forms of story like tragedy and comedy are stories all just randomly individual or do they have some sort of common structure and if they do why and what sort of purpose cultural biological sociological whatever what sort of purpose, psychological, do they serve? And then how does that play out when we tell the very particular kind of stories we know as history? Do they also have the forms of tragedies and comedies and satires or quest stories? 
they are the questions I'm going to address today. But before I get into all of those fascinating questions, let me take a small digression from my story. To, just to say that I have received a bunch of fantastic listener questions from Ryan and from Hardy. If you want to send me some listener questions, please do. I will read them out on the podcast and potentially do a whole show on them. And let me just give you a little bit of a flavour of the questions Ryan Hardy have asked. Hardy asks about Elgin marbles, which I think I referred to in episode 9 of the podcast as part of the episode on the Red Guards are coming, where or in which Lord Elgin's son, Lord Elgin, who stole the Elgin marbles from Greece, Lord Elgin's son featured in the looting of the Summer Palace of Beijing in the mid-19th century. So that's a fascinating topic, and maybe we'll open up the broader topic of the capture and, and holding by uh, museums in imperial capitals around the world of the cultural treasures of other places and Hardy also asks about the large number of skulls in the catacombs of Paris and I didn't know about that but uh, that sounds quite fascinating so I'll have to investigate that and work out how I can work that into an episode and then Ryan asks a bunch of quite brilliant questions and Ryan asks about Israel Palestine and I think I probably addressed that topic a fair bit in a last week's show. I didn't go so much into the 20th century history of Israel-Palestine, but I don't know, maybe I will go into that, maybe particularly in the context of the shifting geopolitics of the world in an episode next year, if I'm feeling diplomatically brave enough and then a bunch of great topics that i'll see if i can work into next year's program about twin peaks and the beatles a bit of a popular culture focus there the salem witch trials and mccarthyism uh, and maybe even cancel culture as a third example of of a particular kind of thinking capturing a wide numbers of people the birth of nation film which is uh, i think a classic film from about 1900 or 1905 like i think it was the first american feature length movie and i don't think it gets displayed a lot these days because it it represented perhaps a more uh, triumphalist viewpoint about american settlement and a nationhood and its manifest destiny then people are particularly comfortable with today but that might be interesting too particularly if we explore a bit of american history and culture freud and psychoanalysis fascinating topic enormously influential through the 20th century don't know so influential anymore George Orwell, the great English writer of 1984, which remains prophetic of our own times. And Beethoven and the great composers of the classical tradition, including, of course, Johann Sebastian Bach, who composed the Goldberg Variations that I very happily begin each episode of The Burning Archive with. Uh, and then Ryan also asks about Taiwan and China, which I think I'm going to address as part of a summer episode on imperial rivalry, 
given the likely flashpoints of military or grey zone conflict there and in Ukraine, alas, in 2022. But I think potentially a separate episode on Taiwan is merited because it has a fascinating history, having been controlled at various times by China and Portugal and Japan and Chiang Kai-shek and pirates. Indeed, probably the Communist Chinese Communist Party would view Chiang Kai-shek and his successes as pirates of one sort or another. And then Ryan also asks about Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand a thousand faces who Joseph Campbell was, I think, um, an American, maybe academic, maybe not American. But so I think he was American, who wrote sort of, I guess, in the Jungian mythology type tradition from the like 1940s, 1950s, uh, and was enormously influential partly because of that, and, and really sort of defined the archetypal heroic quest story and its, I guess, psychological, cultural, mythological significance. And that, I guess, flows quite neatly into the topic of today so thanks very much ryan and hardy they're absolutely fantastic content ideas for me and let me also say that next week i am having another special guest isaac rich who will be giving me seven more challenge questions to incorporate into the burning archive podcast and i will be addressing all of those in the first half of 2022 which is getting so close now and i think ryan and hattie i'm going to do my best to work as many of your topics into the programming in that first half of 2022 as possible remembering as well i've made i think commitments to do an episode on the spanish empire and the portuguese empire do if you want to uh send me in some questions that you'd like to have addressed in the show send me an email at theburningarchive at gmail.com or you can send me a question via twitter at archive burning or any other covert means you may have of getting a message to me nudge nudge wink wink so today is going to be the last of freya's questions from a canon of one's own and how appropriate it is to end a series on freya's canon with a discussion of the enduring forms of narrative what are the types of stories that we just keep on telling ourselves and is there some commonality between those stories across different cultures within the present and i guess across different cultures going back in time so let's remind ourselves of freya's question so on to item number four so this is, again, a little bit of a different one, but I thought we could do a pot. I was thinking what to do, and then I was actually talking to my brother, Isaac, about what to do, and he suggested, and we sort of suggested um, the idea of a podcast on the story archetype of a tragedy, but then more broadly, he was talking about a book called The Seven Basic Plots and thought it could be interesting to do a podcast on, on you know, sort of that idea, you know, of different different story archetypes um, 
perhaps using that book as a base, perhaps you could take it in a different direction. But I thought it was interesting to think about, you know, we all would all say, oh, it's a tragedy all the time, Mm -hmm. but potentially don't know, you know, those that haven't studied literature wouldn't know that that's a particular story archetype and that there are other story archetypes, which you mentioned of earlier when you were talking about Beowulf being a quest story. Mm -hmm. I believe that's another one of these seven archetypes according to this particular book. So yeah, I thought we could do it. You could do a podcast sort of investigating basic or, cla- or classic story types. Yep. So another great question from uh, Freya and also from Isaac. Uh, Rich combining there to ask a really, really, really fascinating question. What is tragedy? What is that? Uh, mean I guess what what are some of these basic story archetypes and how well described are they in this book by Christopher Booker the seven basic plots and it is subtitled that book by Christopher Booker the seven basic plots why we tell stories and it was published in let me see it was published in 2004 received you know wide praise on the back it has a description by a former british minister michael gove the, as a masterpiece the author of watership down describes it as an astounding work of the greatest importance that will quickly become a classic and the wonderful novelist margaret atwood of course is responsible for The Handmaid's Tale a wonderful undertaking I'm happy that people are once again looking at stories in this way so not just some random book that one picks up in a bookshop it has some credibility and we'll come to the detail of that book in a little way but it's also got a fascinating story to it uh, because Christopher Booker spent 30 years writing that book it was quite an enormous undertaking today what i'm going to do though is talk specifically first about tragedy and the original classifier of story types or dramatic forms i.e aristotle and then i'm going to talk a little bit about the broader history or story of trying to find common archetypes amongst stories the story of finding the story of stories so to speak and then i'm going to talk about seven basic plots and give a quick outline of what they are and the answer perhaps to why we tell stories at least according to christopher booker and then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about a, a, a way of applying the idea of basic plots to history. Uh, Hayden White's 1973 classic meta-history that asks the question of, uh, well, uh, are historians just telling forms of stories that the, they've inherited from the culture? Let's talk first about tragedy first person to give us a scholarly taxonomy of basic 
types of stories was Aristotle, who in his Poetics described the different types of poetry uh, and categorised them into verse drama, which included comedy, tragedy and the satire play, and also lyric poetry and the epic, uh, epics like Homer's Odyssey. And he very much had, I guess, a limited pool of examples of uh, artworks to, to go with, but the models for his verse dramas were the great Greek playwrights or verse dramatists, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides and Aristophanes. And he, and so the definition of tragedy is, I guess, the canonical definition of tragedy. If we go all the way back to a canon of one's own from episode 22 with Freyrich, the canonical definition of tragedy really comes from Aristotle originally. And he defined it in this way. Broadly, it's a, a drama of serious, important actions that turn out disastrously for the main protagonist or chief character and largely due to some fatal flaw or uh, inherent conflict or overreach by that character. So Aristotle actually defined tragedy and here I'm just quoting from my very old glossary of literary terms which dates, when did that get published? Gee, it's a 1981 edition of a glossary of literary terms. Aristotle defined tragedy as the imitation of an action that is serious and also as having magnitude complete in itself. It's presented for him, at least in poetic language and in a dramatic way. The novel hadn't really been invented at that point. And it incorporated, and this is crucial, incidents arousing pity and fear wherewith to accomplish the catharsis of such emotions. Catharsis was central to Aristotle's uh, understanding of tragedy. And essentially, catharsis is a Greek word that means purgation or purification. And it really meant that by viewing the the overreach and downfall of this character in a who's both noble but also tragically flawed the audience or the reader experiences a sort of emotional release uh, about that whole fearful pitiful story that in a way there's a both a moral story uh, a moral lesson so to speak from the drama but also an emotional uh, connection and release and uh, collective learning from that sort of uh, experience. And look, there are many famous tragedies. There are clearly the tragedies of Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides, the Orestian cycle, all those sorts of things, uh, perhaps less well-known these days. Uh, Oedipus. The famous Oedipus is a, a tragic story of Sophocles, I think. But Hamlet, similarly, is a tragedy. And you could, in a way, say that there's an old Greek saying that they who the gods wish to destroy, they first drive mad. 
And that, in a way, is a, a, you know, I guess a brief summation of what at least Greek tragedy is all about. Now, as you would have noticed, Aristotle also defined comedy and a satire play. Uh, satire play is kind of like satire, essentially. Um, but comedy is not as well canonically defined in Aristotle's poetics because I believe the text on comedy has not has not survived the fires and the destruction of the ages. And this is actually a key plot point in the novel and the film The Name of the Rose where there is a, a whole drama around a manuscript kept in a medieval Italian monastery that uh, the monks are kind of fight, uh, are obsessed with but also fighting over and the eldest and most severe of the monks is wishing to keep from all the other monks because it turns out to be Aristotle's lost treatise on comedy defining the value and benefit of that uh, narrative form or dramatic form uh, over and above tragedy. So we'll get a little bit more to what comedy is a little bit uh, later on, but it, but it is worth saying, I guess, if I just refer to my glossary of literary terms, that broadly comedy sort of always ends in a marriage. It, it's, it's about... Uh, the harmonious and amusing resolution of the differences between people or, or, or differences in society, comedy of manners. In some ways, Shakespeare's comedies like As You Like It or A Midsummer Night's Dream or The Taming of the Shrew are perhaps as canonical in our culture as anything. And in a way, they define the romantic comedy, the a whole idea that a comedy always ends in a marriage, or if you like, all's well that ends well. Also, the title of a Shakespeare play. And there was a, I think, a Canadian literary critic in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s, Northrop Fry, who, in a way, is a bit of a early version of our our friend Christopher Booker, who writes the seven basic plots because he sort of defines four archetypal kind of narratives in literature and he very much looked at comedy as this whole pattern of moving from the normal world of conflict and trouble into the green world like the forest or the fairy world in which the problems and injustices of the ordinary world are magically dissolved, enemies reconciled, and true lovers united. And in a way, he argued that comic plots reflect, reflected primitive myths and rituals that celebrated the victory of spring over winter. So, and I mention that too because it's a bit of bridge it's an important bridge because that whole connection between narrative forms and the analysis not just of plays and novels and formal stories but also myths and legends 
mythology is actually becomes quite uh, fundamental to the story of the story of stories. Uh, and in a way, he Northrop Frye becomes quite a key person influencing the study of archetypal pattern, patterns in stories and narratives. And just on a side note, before we leave uh, Aristotle, tragedy is apparently actually a Greek word that means goat story, as in G-O-A-T. Uh, so it, it, in a way, it is a, I guess it's a kind of, a, and I presume it's a goat story because it's about the sacrifice of a goat. So that's the actual uh, linguistic heritage of the term. Okay, the story of the story of stories. Now, clearly, uh, Aristotle wrote, you know, several centuries BC, and there have been a lot of people who have written stories, told stories, filmed stories, performed stories, and a lot of people who have written about the form and structure of stories or narratives since Aristotle. And Aristotle only had access to so many stories. He, he might have known, he presumably knew Greek culture fairly well, maybe a little bit of Persian stories, maybe a little bit of Egyptian, but not much beyond that. And there's clearly a whole world of stories and different cultural traditions that have weaved in and out of each other since Aristotle's day that might suggest that that initial canonical taxonomy or definition of the types of stories way back when, when Aristotle wrote, may not really fully cover the field anymore. And it's also true that scholars have, over time, gradually assembled a vast world of stories and types of stories, especially, I'd say, probably from the mid-18th century, certainly in the European traditions, but I guess in other traditions too, but I guess the, the, the traditions that we that I at least clearly know of, of formalised, structured knowledge of narratives and mythology. The organised study of other cultures, stories and mythologies really sort of kicks off, I guess, in the mid-18th century. And what we see from then is, is both encounters with other cultures, Persia, China, India, the Islamic stories, that, I mean, there's a fascination with the Thousand and One Nights. There's many translations of the sacred texts and whatnot of, of different cultures that get sort of imported into European culture from that sort of era. So there's that element. And then there's also within uh, European, I guess, societies, there is the discovery or the reaching out to the folk or low culture traditions of storytelling. So most of what we know as uh, fairy tales or folk stories were, began to be collected uh, by people from the mid-18th century. So the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen uh, are examples. There are, you know, large organised collections of Russian folk stories and other, other European cultural traditions from that era. 
this this organised tradition of folk tradition clearly changes people's sense of just what what stories can be, how varied they are, what patterns they have, how their their narratives develop, and the types of stories that there are. And indeed, they also start to change the sense of what culture is. The formal concepts of culture get actually culture that relate to an ethnic group start to get uh, defined from the sort of mid-18th century in a much more structured, organised way, including both, I guess, emerging concepts of high culture and low culture, pop culture and uh, elite culture. Uh, I mean, one of the legacies of that era is the Kalabala, which is a Finnish epic, which was sort of gathered and um, brought together by talking to semi-illiterate or illiterate rural people in Finland. And the Kalevala is the, the, the great sort of Finnish epic which is drawn upon by J.R.R. Tolkien in part to write some of the narratives of the Lord of the Rings. So we have encounters with other cultures and and another stream of types of stories coming in from the folk culture and it starts to really sort of change change people and and the old classical canonical understanding that Aristotle defined the field in terms of how stories are explained no longer quite holds and then really from the mid 18th century you really start to get the birth of modern studies of linguistics anthropology literature psychology and a huge growth in comparative religion and mythology studies from then on really people are increasingly finding it hard to uh, fit the whole world of stories into aristotle's neat little uh, categories uh, from ancient greece and you, you start to see explorations of different ways of trying to account for this persistent habit people have of telling stories, telling strange stories, but having some kinship between these different stories. There was a famous book by James Fraser, The Golden Bow, which sort of did all that and in a way connected to the idea of Norfolk Fry about comedy relating to springtime sort of rituals uh, because the the whole story of the golden bough he traces back to a kind of a springtime ritual so people are looking at all these stories and all these myths and trying to have some organizing concepts around it in some way even Sigmund Freud is a bit like this his interpretation of the dreams acknowledges that poet showed him away and and he wrote a book I think called Totem and Taboo and and the various sort of ways of seeing you know what what is a story and how does it related to the basic instincts and drives of the of the human mind and certainly the his his uh, former buddy and then alienated much more uh, mystical type of psychologist Carl Jung much more intensely explored myth and symbolism and ways of telling stories and actually came up with the whole concept of archetypes as a kind of a psychological instinct so to speak a, a pattern that's imprinted in the mind that 
shapes behavior and character but is sort of embedded not only in an individual's mind but is part of the collective unconscious and so he'd, he'd talk about uh, archetypes such as the fool or, or indeed the hero and in a way the work that ryan asked about joseph campbell's work on the thousand-faced hero is is in a way a working out of Jung's idea of the archetype of the hero and how it then gets expressed in all sorts of stories including stories in the European tradition and in the Native American tradition and, and other cultures as well. I mean one fascinating example of this same pattern was a Russian I think linguist and folklorist and student of literature Vladimir Prop, who studied a huge number of uh, the great Russian folk stories and actually identified 31 functional elements uh, to those stories and sort of defined a certain order and sequence in which they tended to go. So almost it's quite a almost mathematical sort of description of how stories operate as a series of operations so to speak. So he would say that one of these functional elements was absentation where a member of the hero's community or family leaves the security of the home environment or another is a violation of interdiction a prior rule is violated and there the hero does not listen to the command or the forbidding edict and that sort of kicks off the story another is trickery the villain attempts to deceive the victim to acquire something valuable they press further, aiming to con the protagonists and earn their trust. So that's another way, and probably uh, without dishing our friend Christopher Booker before we get there, in a way it's a much more empirical and, and scholarly sort of way of defining the map of stories. Uh, similarly, there was a French anthropologist, Claude Lévi-Strauss, a great French anthropologist who was very chic still when I was a university student, so that you were not really with it unless you'd had a copy of Tristropic on your bookshelf and knew uh, how to go on about the raw and the cooked. Um, but he would tend to talk about structural elements of myths uh, structural units such as the raw food and the cooked food and how they were in opposition uh, or had a, had a relationship, a structural relationship to each other and that that much more meta sort of logic would define the functioning of the story rather than the sort of categories of story that Aristotle or Christopher Booker used or that all the the process steps in the story, so to speak, that Vladimir Prop uh, talks about. And just as a side note, of course, uh, Claude Levi Strauss was a was you know the archetypal, the one of the leading figures of French structuralist thought, which really looked at culture, if you like, as structured like a language, because structuralists were followed by people who had a different concept of how language 
operated in a less structural way, that set of intellectuals like Derrida and Foucault were known, at least back in the day, as post-structuralists. So I'm not sure they're known so much these days as post-structuralists, but if anyone is interested still, that is where the term post-structuralism comes from. So I guess all of that is just to say people have been trying to look at the mystery of stories for a long time and have come up with lots of different ways of thinking about and categorizing them. There's Aristotle's old canonical way, there's called Levi-Strauss's structuralist way, and by stories we're including myths here. And then you have people like Vladimir Prop with his highly mathematicized and uh, empirical sort of way. The great thing about Christopher Booker's way is it's uh, a way of talking about seven basic stories is, uh, well, seven's a little bit easier to remember than 31 functional elements. No disrespect to Vladimir Prop. And also he kind of relates it to it's very relatable very understandable quite easy to uh, get your head around and he also relates the the basic categories to i guess a sort of a jungian psychological approach it's very much a a sort of uh, psychological archetypes in explaining the stories and in some ways it's not dissimilar to the approach to stories that Jordan Peterson uses. He, you'll find Jordan Peterson will often talk about stories as, you know, even like simple children's book stories about dragons and things like that as representing deep psychological truths and fundamental wisdom or patterns in how people go about relating to the world. Christopher Booker's book, uh, a lot of people praise it, some people disagree with it. But let's not uh, have a debate amongst critics for now, but let's just hear what these seven basic stories are. So there are seven basic story, stories, seven basic plots to be precise. Uh, according to Christopher Booker, and they are Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, The Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, our old friend Comedy, Tragedy, our even older friend Tragedy, and finally Rebirth. So that's the seven basic stories. And I'm just going to quickly go through each one of those to talk about what how Booker sort of describes them overcoming the monster that's story number one so the essence of the overcoming the monster story is is uh, according to Christopher Booker that both we and the hero are made aware of the existence of some superhuman embodiment of evil power this monster may take human form, e.g. a giant or a witch, a form of an animal, or a combination of both. It is always deadly, threatening destruction to those who cross its path or fall into its clutches. Often it is threatening an entire community or kingdom, even mankind and the world in general. 
but the monster often also has in its clutches some great prize, priceless treasure, or a beautiful princess. So we can all understand that story. And within that story, there's also a kind of a concept about a thrilling escape from death. So a couple of examples. Well, I guess there's Beowulf to some degree, isn't there? There's a bit of Beowulf in that sort of story. Uh, He gives the example of Dr. No, as in the James Bond movie. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a very, very old Sumerian, Babylonian kind of story from I think it's the oldest known written story and dates from 2000 BC or something or St George and the Dragon the monster in the in the story uh, can be a predator a holdfast or an avenger or go through all those different phases and if you like every uh, thriller story we 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 really know is one of those stories And the story tends to proceed through an initial call or awareness that that evil power is out there, uh, some initial success in confronting it, a more frustrated phase of uh, confronting the monster where the monster starts to win, some final ordeal or nightmare, and then either a miraculous escape or the death of the monster. Dr. No gets defeated in the end. Okay, story number two, Rags to Riches. Well, I guess the, the, the title says it all. Christopher Booker says, Again and again in the storytelling of the world, we come across a certain image which seems to hold a peculiar fascination for us. We see an ordinary, insignificant person dismissed by everyone as of little account who suddenly steps to the centre of the stage revealed to be someone quite exceptional and examples here are aladdin puss in boots uh, my fair lady or the um there's that film with julia roberts and richard Gere, pretty woman why why could i not remember that um that that story in so i mean they're classic uh stories and um there, there are many many others as well I'm sure you can think of of your own. And again, it's a similar kind of thing. There's an initial present, or I guess you could even say Cinderella is um, one such story. There's an initial wretchedness at home, the call out, going out into the world, some initial success, some sort of crisis, uh, experience of independence and ordeal. And then a final union completion or fulfilment of uh, the, the, the hero's life. Their experience of going from rags to riches. The third type of basic plot is the quest. And here we have uh, the Odyssey of Homer's Odyssey. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, the Divine Comedy uh, of Dante. Uh, in a way, The Fellowship of the Ring, as in J.R.R. Tolkien. And similarly, there's a similar... Pro- there's a Well, it's a quest, isn't it? I mean, you go out on a quest. There's a call, there's a journey, there's some frustration. Once you get going, some ordeals. And then there's a goal. And somehow or other, the quest is self-transforming for the hero. I mean, otherwise, it's just some boring travel log, isn't it? I guess every 
in many ways, every uh, many travel stories are actually travel logs are actually cast as quest stories. Christopher Booker says no type of story is more instantly recognizable to us than a quest far away. We learn there is some priceless goal worth any effort to achieve, a treasure, a promised land, something of infinite value. From the moment the hero learns of this prize, the need to set out on the long hazardous journey to reach it becomes the most important thing to him or her in the world. Whatever perils and diversions lie in wait on the way, the story is shaped by that one overriding imperative, and the story remains unresolved until the objective has been finally, triumphantly secured. The fourth type of story is Voyage and Return. And here some examples are Robinson Crusoe, uh, a kind of a social voyage in return. He gets, goes out, gets lost on an island, finds his way around the island, ultimately finds his way back uh, home, transformed. There was a, a book by L.P. Hartley called The Go-Between, uh, which I, I remember studying for uh, VCE English in Year 12, which in a way is a similar story. And in its own way, the Jason Bourne movies are perhaps a voyage and return story. Jason Bourne is sort of thrown into this world of amnesia and being a spy and ultimately needs and is sort of thrown into the never world of his compromised identity and ultimately makes his way back both to where it all began for him and uh, in order to to end it all. And Booker says that the essence of the Voyage and Return story is that its hero or heroine or the central group of characters travel out of their familiar, everyday, normal surroundings into another world completely cut off from the first where everything seems disconcertingly abnormal. At first, the strangeness of this new world with its freaks and marvels may seem diverting, even exhilarating, if also highly perplexing. But gradually, a shadow intrudes. The hero or heroine feels increasingly threatened, even trapped, until eventually, usually by a way of a thrilling escape, they are released from the abnormal world and and can return to the safety of the familiar world they began. And in a way, it's the voyage and return story that, uh, and here I guess I'm addressing one of Ryan's, uh, listener Ryan's questions, Uh, it's the voyage and return story that is particularly focused on in Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand faces where he really sort of describes a whole huge range of um, stories from many many cultures within a similar structure of the adventure of the hero departing this world crossing a threshold into some different sort of world Uh, sometimes even the world of death if you like like 
Orpheus going into the underworld. Initiation and then return, but coming back a changed person in some way. So that's Voyage and Return. Uh, again, a classic type of story. The fifth story is comedy. Now, you might imagine comedy is just lots of jokes and people having a whole lot of farce and chaos, or just being uncouth. But as uh, Christopher Booker says, comedy is a very specific kind of story. Again, uh, examples are like The Marriage of Figaro, uh, which was, I guess, both an opera by Mozart, but also a very, very famous play by Beaumarchais, which had quite a significant role in the prelude to the French Revolution. And all those uh, Shakespeare comedies uh, were talked about. And of course, every romantic comedy movie one has ever watched. Sleepless in Seattle, all those other romantic comedy films that whose names are escaping me just at this moment. And in a way, comedy is a classic case of showing how the dramatic forms defined by Aristotle in his initial canon or canonical classification is too constraining because comedy has developed enormously since uh, the time of Aristophanes and uh, Shakespeare, many, many others, obviously every all, all those uh, wonderful romantic comedy films and all the rest of it. And those significant transformations in the skill and the art and the pattern of comedy uh, just show how how extensive story how, how extensively stories can change we've just since aristotle didn't give us a canonical definition of comedy or that we have lost it uh, christopher booker says that comedy is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle by the time the jigsaw is complete it seems obvious that there is only one way it could have ended up with each piece in its proper place and fitting perfectly together with all the others and the key to in comedy the key to bringing this to light how each piece fits together is the process of recognition and he sees four basic sort of steps along the way in the comedy the first is that characters who have become dark because they are imprisoned in some hard device of unloving state anger greed jealousy shrewishness disloyalty, self-righteousness or whatever, must be softened and liberated by some act of self-recognition and a change of heart. Secondly, it may be necessary for the identity of one or more characters to be revealed in a more literal sense. So they'll take their masks off. Puck will reveal themselves to be who they really are. Thirdly, where relevant, the characters must discover who they are meant to pair off with, their true other half. And finally, in general, wherever there is division, separation or loss, it shall be repaired. Families shall be reunited, lost objects found, usurped kingdoms re-established. Whatever is out of place or sick must be restored. So comedy is a very restorative and enjoyable form of story. Then we get to tragedy. 
again, let's see some examples of tragedy. Macbeth, Faust, as in Dr. Faustus, the story of the Renaissance scholar who sells his soul to the devil for greater knowledge and is ultimately destroyed thereby. Icarus, uh, the story of the boy who and, and his father who defy physical limitations and try to fly and fly too close to the sun, their wings of wax melting and they fall to their deaths. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and the great Nambokov story about a pedophile, unfortunately, Lolita. There are some of the examples of tragedies that, that our friend Christopher Booker identifies. And let me just give a, a little bit of a summary on tragedy because it was the particular one that Freya pulled out. But um, Christopher Booker's summary of her tragedy is that in each of these stories shows a hero being tempted or impelled into a course of action which is in some way dark or forbidden. For a time, as the hero embarks on a course, he enjoys almost unbelievable dreamlike success. But somehow it is in the nature of the course he is pursuing that he cannot achieve satisfaction. His mood is increasingly checkered by a sense of frustration as he still pursues the dream, vainly trying to make his position secure. He begins to feel more and more threatened. Things have got out of control. The original dream has soured into a nightmare where everything is going more and more wrong. This eventually culminates in the hero's violent destruction. And it is in that violent destruction that the catharsis, that that we experience that catharsis as the audience or the readers, we say, ah, yes, yes, don't try to be a search for world domination by whatever means necessary. The final of the seven basic plots is rebirth. Here are some examples. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, The Snow Queen. And I think The Snow Queen, which is like, I think it's a Russian fairy tale. I think that's the basic story from which the film Frozen is constructed. So Frozen, a story of rebirth. Another story of rebirth that Christopher Booker identifies is Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky's great story of crime and punishment, where Raskanikov is tormented by radical ideas, radical nihilistic ideas. He kills his landlady because she represents cruelty and, and money, and he is tormented by that and ultimately ultimately finds his way to some form of, I guess, repentance and rebirth into a more kind and uh, Christian perspective on the world. And Christopher Booker sums up the various forms of rebirth story in this way. There's a basic sequence of five steps. Number one, a young hero or heroine falls under the shadow of the dark power. Number two, For a while, all may seem to go reasonably well. The threat may even seem to have receded. Number three. But eventually it approaches again in full force until the hero or heroine is seen imprisoned in the state of living death. Number four. 
This continues for a long time when it seems that the dark power has completely triumphed. And number five, but finally comes the miraculous redemption, either where the imprisoned figure is a heroine by the hero or where it is the hero by a young woman or a child or some other kind of uh, symbol or metaphor. An idea or faith, whatever it might be, magic. So they are the seven basic stories. Going backwards, Rebirth, Tragedy, Comedy, Voyage and Return, The Quest, Rags to Riches, and Overcoming the Monster. Not a bad way of of understanding the stories you're consuming, but also uh, a good way of thinking about if you write, want to tell your own story, what the basic sort of structure and form of that story might be. And after reviewing these seven basic plots, in a way, Booker circles back to Aristotle and comes back to Aristotle's elementary observation that a story always has a beginning, a middle and an end which is a basic sort of structure to the story and that there's a similar kind of process within each story in some ways Vladimir Props 31 functions is a much more sophisticated way of saying a similar thing there's a beginning and then you have your 31 functions that sort of drive the middle and then they all get uh, resolved by the end but Christopher Booker relates all those different story types to a fundamentally common pattern of stories of moving from shadow to light, from some sort of difficulty to a resolution. Uh, And that there are many variations on this. There's a road to self-realization. There's struggling against an enemy within. There's some maturing experience or some cathartic release of uh, a tragic flaw as in tragedy, or a comic release of uh, conflicts and differences in comedy. And he says that all stories have this essential pattern of a threefold ebb and flow. Initial constriction, limited opening, a phase of preparation leading to the climax and then ultimately a final liberation and the release of the prize. And this is where he comes to his his view on what the whole point of stories really is. At such a moment, we recognise again and again something which lies at the very root of our lifelong experience of storytelling in all its myriad forms and guises. The sense at the ending of a story that only with enormous difficulty and after a long and painful struggle, something of inestimable life-giving value has at last been worked forth from a dark imprisoning matrix which held it fast. When we see the essence of stories in this light, we are left with three overriding questions. What is this thing of priceless value which has to be won from the shadows? What is it which casts those shadows and creates that imprisonment in the first place? And just as important as either of these, 
What is it that is required for this liberation to be successfully achieved? There you go. That is Christopher Booker's Seven Basic Plots. And I mean, it's a very interesting overview, I guess, of storytelling. And it's great insight into story and a great appreciation, I guess, of the richness of stories. It's a very, I guess, psychological, Jungian kind of take on storytelling. And that works for some people and doesn't work for others. And with any kind of structure like that, it's trying to uh, fit an awful lot of stories into a very economical set of uh, categories and types. And, you know, there's an element in which that is forcing things just a little bit. And he certainly refers to the developments in, I guess, the late 19th and 20th century of basically modernism, where there's a breakdown in patterns of storytelling related to broader social and cultural and psychological conditions. And maybe maybe that's also, maybe there are new types of stories being invented, just as Yeats uh, described, a terrible new beauty being born. So I'll just come back at the end of the podcast to whether I buy Christopher Booker's Seven Basic Plots. But I want to just briefly also refer to how this basic idea of categories of stories also can apply to history. And there was a a very influential book from 1973 by really a philosopher of history, Hayden White, who approached history really as, as a literary product or literary artifact. And he really, I guess, argued that Historians don't directly observe the past. What they actually do is they take the events and chronicles and documents of the past and turn it into some kind of story, some kind of literary artifact that has a more or less well-fashioned story with a plot and an argument. And and that different there are different styles and patterns of doing that. Like some historians are very lyrical and poetic and try to evoke the spirit of the age. I guess I'm probably a bit like that. Uh, other historians are very much looking at laws and principles and the fundamental drivers of things. So you think about Karl Marx looking at the you know fundamental laws of history. Some historians want to illuminate current social problems and others look at the past for its own sake, like art for art's sake sort of approach to history. And uh, the thing about the plots and the metaphors and the cast of mind that historians bring to history is it's not totally chosen on their part or totally under their control. They tend to use some of these basic archetypal stories. So what Hayden White did was he actually used the categories of Northrop Fry, who I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is as using uh, some basic archetypal types of stories, partly based in you know analysis of mythology and partly based in Aristotle's old categories. Hayden White uses these four categories uh, as ways of giving a basic plot to the history that people write about history, and those are tragedy, comedy, romance, and satire. And he describes their romance as a drama of self-identification symbolised by the hero's transcendence of the experience of the world. 
you could say E.P. Thompson's making of the English working class is a romantic history or a romance history that is describing the story of the English working class transcending its experience of the world. There's satire, which is a drama of the revelation of the world as irredeemably corrupted. In some ways, Felipe Fernandez Amesto, you could almost say, writes history as satire because he says there's no pattern, there's no overarching theme, there's things just unfold in a crazy, chaotic way, and he he sort of relishes the sort of with kindness the sort of foibles and failures of the world. There's comedy, which presents history as a relief from the fallen world, where we find relief by the reconciliation of conflicts, social and natural. Can't quite think of an example for for comedy right now. And then there's tragedy where there's a revelation of the fallenness of the world and the point is to reveal to the audience the overarching of the overreaching of the tragic hero driven to destruction by the demons of his or her soul. Um, I guess every rise and fall story of an empire is really a tragedy. Oh, well, I see the the story, the the example Hayden White gives of comedy is Ranka, um, Leopold von Ranka. Uh, and the real point that he makes is that historians, in order to figure out what really happened in the past, therefore, Hayden White says, the historian must first prefigure as a possible object of knowledge the whole set of events reported in the documents. He has to have a he or she has to have some kind of story in mind already and that this is a poetic act that requires some that is is partly imaginative and is not merely a realistic representation of the world so it's quite something to think about certainly something to think about as 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 dear listener you listen to the burning archive podcast that uh, at times, I may well be writing history as romance, mm, not so commonly, certainly sometimes as satire, occasionally as comedy and occasionally as tragedy. The thing about uh, all these categories as well is one can also move in and out of them. And that's perhaps where where I can come back to Christopher Booker and what I really think about Seven Basic Stories. And a little bit like that observation about moving in and out of comedy and tragedy and romance and, I guess, playing uh, a little bit with those forms, I really do think while setting out these sort of categories of stories is excellent from an analytical point of view, I think what you would, if one finds in truth, is many stories actually contain elements of many of those plots and perhaps strange other sorts of plots that are simply not easily accommodated within within the uh, categories of literary critics. And Christopher Booker himself says that there are masterworks that contain all of the basic plots. He identifies The Lord of the Rings as one of those uh, masterworks that contains all seven of his uh, seven basic plots. And in, in the same way, I think someone like Felipe Fernandez Amesto is capable of writing comic history, tragic history, satirical history and romantic history and moving I guess, flexibly in between those different types of stories. 
So do I really believe that system builders like Christopher Booker or Aristotle or or Hayden White who who want to define a, a set of categories that logically and conceptually constrain the possibilities of story? Do I think they have cracked the codes of story? I don't really think so. My heart is really more with the storyteller who I started the podcast with, Scheherazade, and faced with such taxonomies of story, I think it's always possible, it's always possible to come up with just one more story, just one more night to tell a different kind of story. And just as Scheherazade outwitted uh, her evil ruler, Sharia, so master storytellers and prankster storytellers can outwit, outlast, and outplay all the critics and so survive, just as Scheherazade did. Indeed, at the end of A Thousand and One Nights, uh, Scheherazade asks Sharia finally to end this torment and forgive her and to to stop his tragically demented behaviour of killing all the virgins of his country. And, and he accepts, he goes on to live with her and the three children who he has had with Scheherazade over the Thousand and One Nights. And they all live more or less happily ever after. So I don't think there are just seven basic plots I think there must be at least 1,001. Thanks again for listening. Special thank you to Freya Rich, who suggested that wonderful topic, and to Isaac Rich, who also suggested that particular topic. But special call out to Freya Rich for giving seven fantastic topics for the Burning Archive podcast back in a canon of one's own. Next week, I'm actually going to be talking to Isaac Rich, who will be giving me seven more challenge topics for the Burning Archive. So do make sure to listen then and do all the things that one's meant to do with podcasts, share and like and subscribe and leave a five-star review and tell your friends and spread the word about the Burning Archive. Slightly longer than usual episode today. I hope that's okay with you. And please remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Until next time, that's all from me.